And that is exactly right. His name is above every other name because he is above every other being, I say in the universe, but even beyond the universe. He's above and beyond even the universe. And so this morning, as we come back to thinking about the names of God, I want to take you to a passage of scripture to start off with where David in his life is at a place of great victory and success. He's conquered the Philistines. He's defeated all his enemies. Now he lives in a palace for the first time in his life. And he's thinking about building God a permanent structure. At this point, uh, there's still only a tabernacle. There's no temple. And so David's beginning to think about, well, I'm sitting in a palace. Maybe I should build God this amazing temple. And God sends Nathan the prophet to him to tell him, it's not going to be you, David. It's going to be one of your descendants that's going to build me a temple. And it says then that David went into the presence of the Lord and sat before him. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 22, it says, it says this, and this is David speaking to God. This is why you are great, Lord God. It's Yahweh Adonai, the, the name that we looked at last week. There's no one like you. There's no uh, God besides you, Elohim as we have all heard, confirms. And who is like your people, Israel, God? God came to one nation on earth in order to redeem a people for himself, to make a name for himself, and to perform for them great and awesome acts, driving out nations and their gods before your people, you redeemed for yourself from Egypt. You established your people, Israel, to be your own people forever, and you, Lord, Yahweh, have become their God, Elohim. There's a phrase right in the middle of that. And that's an excellent passage if you want to look at a great passage of Scripture, verses before and after that, where David just affirms all these wonderful things about God. But there's a phrase right in the middle of that that I want to draw your attention to. David says, you did all these things for Israel. You established a people for yourself, basically to make a name for yourself. Initially, God chose a group of people, the, the least likely people on the planet, the least powerful, the least uh, in, you know, influential. Uh, they were slaves, essentially. And God said, I'm going to love you. I'm going to put my love on you. I'm going to bless you. And you're going to be my people and I'm going to be your God. And through that, his desire was to make a name for himself. In other words, he was saying, yeah, Israel, you have a relationship with me. But through your relationship with me, I'm going to let the rest of the world know who I am. And that is still true. So fast forward to your life. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if Christ has come into your life, you put your trust in him then you have a relationship with God. And all these names that we're talking about are just different parts of God's character that you're getting to know him better, more intimately. And that focus can be so you and God that sometimes we don't take the next step and realize that the reason that God, part of the reason that God makes himself known to us is that he wants to make himself known to everyone who's in every circle of influence in your life. So think about your circles of influence, your family, your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, all these different relationships that God has sovereignly and strategically placed you in the lives of these other people, he's done that. Yes, you have knowledge of him. Yes, you know him personally, but it doesn't end with you. He wants to make himself a name through his relationship with you. And so that's part of the reason that we want to get to know him is not just for our sake. Obviously, that has a huge impact on us and our love for him. But beyond that, it's who does he want to know himself through his relationship with you. Because here's the thing, God loves every single person and wants to have a relationship with every single person. And he's going to use his relationship with you to tell that story to people that don't know him yet. So we have a great privilege. We actually get to show people what God's like. That's the greatest privilege on the planet, as far as I can tell. 
is to get to actually live out our faith before people where they see something unusual in us, something that's different in us. We get to be his ambassadors, his representatives, and he communicates who he is through his love for us and his relationship with us. So our relationship with God is this, it's this living story. It's an active picture of what, of what God wants to do ultimately in the lives of every single person. So this morning, we're going to look at two more names of God, and both of these names come from the story of one individual, and her name is Hannah. Now, I've told you guys this before, but when I put the sermon series together several weeks ago, I didn't fully understand even how these two names go together each week that I was going to study. I kind of used some logic. I prayed through it. I said, Lord, give me some direction, but I, I think it's great that God doesn't need me, <laughs> you know? You know what I mean? I mean, I sat down and did that, and then as I have studied each week, it's amazed me how these two names that I chose, I chose, go together. Even today, when I began to study this week, I was like, I didn't know both these names were revealed through the story and life of Hannah. I didn't know that. Like, that's who God is. He's sovereign. He's in control. And we submit ourselves to him. It's fun to just sit back sometimes and go, I'm so glad God knows stuff I don't know. I'm so glad God's aware of things I don't, I'm not aware of and is able to control those things. And so this morning, let's consider this first name. It's the name Eldeah. It's the compound of Elohim, which is powerful, supreme, and sovereign God. And then the idea or the name Dea, which means knowledge. So it literally means the God of knowledge or the God who knows. And so the context of this, as I said, 1 Samuel chapter 2 and chapter 1 and chapter 2, the story of Hannah. You may not know much about Hannah, but Hannah's married to a man named Elkanah, and she's childless, and she very much wants to have a child. She wants to have a son. And so annually, her and her son go up, her and her, sorry, her and her husband go up to Shiloh to worship and sacrifice to the Lord, and she's on one of these treks, she's outside the temple, and Eli is there at the temple, the, the priest, and she's on her face before God, and she's begging God. She's pleading with God to give her a child, to give her a son specifically. And Eli's observing her, and she's, you ever done this? She's praying, she's moving her lips, but she's not saying words out loud. She's praying silently, but she's moving her lips. And Eli thinks she's drunk. So he kind of scolds her for what she's doing, and she says, I'm not drunk, I am brokenhearted. I am pleading my case before God, and I am just beside myself. And so Eli tells her, go in peace. May the God of Israel grant you what you've asked of him. And God does a miracle in her life, and she conceives, and she has a son. And she names her son Shemuel. We call him Samuel. But essentially, it's the two words Shema, which is to hear, and Elohim, El, which is God. So basically, she names her son, I heard from God. God answered me which is amazing. It's a great gift in her life. And so then she makes a promise to God. She says, if you give me a son, I will dedicate him completely to you. And so she does that. She takes him at a very young age to the temple and she basically puts him into the guardianship of Eli, the priest, and he lives at the temple the rest of his life until he becomes a man. And during that period of time, God actually calls him to be a great prophet for the Lord. So in chapter two of 1 Samuel, Hannah is praising God. She's praying based on the fact that God has answered her prayer. And this is what she says in chapter two, verses one through three. Hannah, Hannah prayed, my heart rejoices in the Lord. It's Yahweh. My horn is lifted up by the Lord, Yahweh. My mouth boasts over my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There's no one holy like the Lord, Yahweh. There's no one besides you. There's no rock like our God, Elohim. Do not boast so proudly or let arrogant words come out of your mouth. For the Lord Yahweh is a God, Elohim, of knowledge. It's the name Eldeah. And actions are weighed by him. So in the context of childlessness, 
what seems to be a hopeless situation for her, she says, God knows. God knows me. You ever come to that discovery in your life that God actually knows, that God is aware of you? Well, yeah, we talk about that all the time. Is that a new idea for you? If you're watching online this morning, is that something you've ever thought about? That, that God is totally and fully aware of who you are. El Dea, God knows. So what does God know? Simple, God knows everything, right? I mean, the Bible says that. We use the word omniscient to describe God being all-knowing, but the Bible confirms that and affirms that in many different places. In Job 37, 16, it says, do you understand how the clouds float? Those wonderful works of him who has perfect knowledge. We have to have him reveal himself in this way to us because we don't know anybody else who has perfect knowledge. So who could we compare him to? No one. Because you don't know another human being who has perfect knowledge. You don't know another being anywhere who has perfect knowledge. God is the only one who knows. Psalm 73, 11 says this, the wicked say, how can God know? He's talking about Elohim. Does the most high El Elyon know everything? And that's the context of evildoers who say, you know what? I can get away with this because God's not really gonna know about this. Does he know everything? And the answer is, yeah, he knows everything. So the Bible talks about this idea in Hannah's life of her being in a situation where she might be tempted to think God's not aware of her situation, <clears throat> what she's struggling with, childlessness, barrenness. She's prayed before and, and, and then her prayer hasn't been answered. And so it's maybe an application for those of us who struggle with things sometimes to go, is God really aware of what's going on in my life? Has he forgotten about me? Does he really know? That's the point of this being revealed through Hannah, I believe, is that God always knows. Isaiah 40 says this, who's directed the spirit of the Lord or who gave him counsel? <clears throat> who did he consult? Who gave him understanding and taught him the paths of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? No one. His knowledge is independent and inherent in who he is. And you don't know anyone like him and neither do I. And then Psalm 139 talks about his personal knowledge of us. And you're familiar with this. It says, Lord, you search me and know me. This is Yahweh. You know when I sit down and when I stand up. You understand my thoughts from afar away. You observe my travel and my rest. You're aware of all my ways. <clears throat> Before a word is on my tongue, you know all about it, Lord. But Greg, can you grab my water down there? I'm sorry, I'm kind of struggling this morning. <laughs> my voice is playing out. Um, you placed your hand on me. This wondrous knowledge is beyond me. It's lofty. I'm unable to reach it. And then Romans 11:33 says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. So when you think about the knowledge of God, what God knows, it's amazing. He knows everything about every one of us. He knows what we're scared of. He knows what we love and who we love. He knows uh, what we won't, we're not, we're not we're eager to do for him. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. He knows everything about us. Have you thought about that today? That God knows all those things about you. Something else God knows. He knows our intentions and our motives. He knows our thoughts. He knows what goes on inside of us. I think that was so hard for the religious people of Jesus' day to understand about him because he was unlike <clears throat> any other man who had ever lived. Because he knew everything that people were thinking. So when someone came and asked Jesus a question, he not only knew what the question was going to be before they asked it, he knew their motive for asking it. 
Can you imagine standing next to Jesus and him knowing everything about the way you think, your heart, your motives? You might want to be like, uh, <laughs> I don't want to get too close to him because he knows stuff about me that no one else in the world would know. I'm going to take a minute here. I'm sorry, y'all. I'm having a little trouble. <clears throat> so Jesus in people's lives, and up to that point, the religious leaders, what they would do is they basically would be concerned with the external things. They were trying to do the right things on the right days in the right order. And they thought if they just did all those things, it didn't really matter what was going on inside of them because no one knew that until Jesus. Now Jesus knows exactly what's going on inside of them and he calls them whitewashed tombs. He says, yeah, the outside's all white and clean, but inside you're full of all kinds of dead things. And so Jesus knows about them what they don't even know about themselves sometimes. That's all the things that motivate them. He knows that about us too. He knows everything that goes on in our lives. And so God's knowledge of us is complete. It's perfect. So he knows what's in us. He knows what we need is in Hannah's situation. And then this, God knows what we don't know. You ever think about that? That God actually knows what we don't know? You got me a big bottle? Thank you so much. There's nothing worse than trying to hear somebody talk who can't talk. You know, you kind of want to clear your throat for them. So I'm sorry about that. I shouldn't have sang this morning. That messes me up, but I love to sing. So, um, so God knows even what you don't know about yourself. He knows the things that you don't know about the world. We look around and go, what's going on in the world right now? It's crazy. God knows. God knows all about it. He's El Dea. He knows everything that's going on around us. So let me ask you this question. Does the fact that God knows everything about you bring you peace or fear? If you've never put your trust in Jesus Christ, that ought to scare you to death. That God knows everything about everything you've ever said, done, or thought. Now, the great news I want to share with you in just a few minutes is that the gospel is the good news, which means that God can forgive every bit of that and restore you to a right relationship with him. And, and so that's a great thing. So think about Hannah's story and think about this idea of God who knows everything. And then hold that thought. We're going to consider a second name this morning. <clears throat> the second name is this, Yahweh Sabaoth. Yahweh Sabaoth. It's the combination of Yahweh, which is self-existent, personal, and present. And then the name Sabaoth literally means hosts or armies or warfare. Now, we sang a couple of songs this morning. We started with Psalm 46 this morning where we sang about, about God who's the Lord of hosts. And then we sang, Whom Shall I Fear, the God of Angel Armies. And you probably, before you heard that Chris Thomas song, probably never thought about who is the God of Angel Armies. I've never heard that name for God. You probably have, but you may not have known it. So that's what it means. It literally means that this idea of, of Yahweh Sabaoth is the God of angel armies or the God of hosts, of a host of of angels. And so that is actually used all the way through the Old Testament. Go back to 1 Samuel 1. We're in Hannah's story. Remember, I told you her story kind of reveals both names. The very first time we hear that name is in 1 Samuel 1 when she's pleading for God to give her a child. Guess who she calls him by? Yahweh Sabaoth. Look in 1 Samuel 1, 3. It says this, this man would go up, speaking of her husband from his town every year to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of armies, Yahweh Sabaoth at Shiloh, where Eli's two sons were the priest. So it's interesting because Elkanah, her husband and her, would go up every year to Shiloh and they would worship in the tabernacle or at the tabernacle. And in the tabernacle is the Ark of the Covenant. You're familiar with the Ark of the Covenant? And the Ark of the Covenant ultimately was what resided in the Holy of Holies in the temple in Jerusalem when there was finally a temple built. But that Ark of the Covenant represented the physical manifestation of the presence of God. It wasn't that God was only there 
because God's omnipresent as well. He's everywhere at the same time. But it represented the physical manifestation of his presence. The Israelites could point to the tent, the tabernacle, or the temple and say, the presence of the Lord resides in that place. I know where he is. And on the Ark of the Covenant, there's a name. Want to guess what that name is? Yahweh Sabaoth, the God of armies, the God of hosts. This is what it says in 2 Samuel 6, 2. Speaking of David, he and his troops set out to bring the Ark of the Covenant, or the Ark of God, Elohim, from Baal Judah. And the Ark bears the name, the name of the Lord of armies, Yahweh Sabaoth, who is enthroned between the cherubim. You know the picture of the Ark is there's a cherubim on either end, and on the front is the name Yahweh Sabaoth, the God of armies, or the God of hosts. And you may say, well, why have I never heard that name very much until lately? Well, I'll tell you one of the reasons, because most of your English translations, most of your Bibles, New American Standard, NIV, all the other ones that have been in years past, translate the name Lord of hosts. But if you do the word study, what you'll find is that it actually means Lord of hosts or Lord of armies or Lord of warfare. So it's a, it's a military idea. It's a picture of God as a commander of a countless number of angel soldiers. Isn't that amazing? And accurately, I mean, I should say the, the CBA, uh, Christian Standard Bible, CSB, translates it everywhere it translates this name. It doesn't translate Lord of hosts. It translates it Lord of armies. So it's a very graphic description of who God is in our lives. And so here's Hannah, and she's praying for God to give her a child, and she's pleading with him. But in her thought processes, in her mind, she's thinking of him as the God of angel armies. The God of armies, the God of hosts, the God of warfare. And so it says this. This name is used 260 times in the Bible. It says this in 1 Samuel 1.11. Making a vow, she, being Hannah, pleaded, Lord of hosts or armies, if you will take notice of your servant's affliction, remember and not forget me, and give your servant a son, <clears throat> I will give him to the Lord, Yahweh, all the days of his life, and he will never cut his hair. So you see that... What's true for Hannah is, is goes back to what I said one of the very first weeks of this series, and that is what A.W. Tozer said. What comes into your mind when you think of God is the most important thing about you. So I want to ask you a question. Do you think of God in that way? Because the idea of God as Yahweh Sabaoth, the God of, of hosts or the God of armies, is the idea of strength and power and authority above any other. Do you think of him in that way? We sang to him this morning. We sang about him. But does, does that idea permeate your thinking in the way that you live your life every single day? Think about the story of, of David and Goliath. You remember that story? David's just a boy. He's been a shepherd boy, and he's the only man, the only male in the whole nation of Israel that's willing to go out and fight this nine-foot giant named Goliath. And he's ready. He goes to Saul, the king. He says, I don't need your armor. I got a slingshot. I'm good. <laughs> you know? And Saul's like, I don't think so. I don't think you're going to need a little more than that to fight the giant. But this is what he says. <clears throat> David said this to the Philistine. You come against me with a sword, spear, and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of armies, Yahweh Sabaoth, the God of the ranks of Israel, and you have defied him. So you see what, what in David's mind was true, the same thing in Hannah's mind, is when I think of God correctly, as, as powerful as full of authority and strength, it changes the way I relate to him. It changes the way I relate to my whole world. And so uh, David goes against the giant in the fear of the Lord and the understanding and knowledge of who God is and how powerful he is. Well, Isaiah has a similar experience. You probably remember this from Isaiah chapter 6 where Isaiah is in the temple 
and he sees the Lord. He has a vision of God. <clears throat> it says this in Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, Adonai, seated on a high and lofty throne. And the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him, and they each had six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to the other, or to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies, Yahweh Sabaoth. His glory fills the whole earth. The foundation of the doorway shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. And then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips. <clears throat> and because my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of armies, Yahweh Sabaoth. So you keep seeing this name over and over again. And every time you see it, it's communicating the same thing. Authority, strength, and power. So for Hannah, God's authority, strength, and power in her life meant that she pleaded with him for something she really wanted to happen in her life. For David, it meant that his, his understanding of, and his thinking of God's authority, power, and strength meant, meant that he had courage, unusual courage, to face a giant no one else was willing to face. And for Isaiah, his idea of God's power, strength, and authority meant that he was willing to submit himself to God's authority because later he says, I'll go. The Lord says, who will go for us? And he says, I will. So here I am, here I am, Lord, send me. I volunteer. And so in our lives, when we think about Seeing God as he is, thinking about God as he is, understanding him as he is, it changes everything about the way we relate to the world around us. So think about that. In terms of God's authority, power, and strength, what does that mean for you? <clears throat> Several years ago, uh, I took, used to take kids down to Mexico every year at spring break on mission trips. And um, we would stop at the checkpoint there, go through Eagle Pass, and then we went about seven hours into a little village called uh, Ocampo, we had a great time down there. It was still safe to go and do missions, and we did that, and we really enjoyed it. <clears throat> and we met a guy one year down there named Browning Lentz. Browning is an American guy. He lives in Camado, which is just up the, the road from Eagle Pass there. It's on the Texas border. And um, he's a missionary. He would go into Mexico, take trips in there, lead groups in. And um, great guy. We got to know him. And, and so uh, we stopped at the first checkpoint there to kind of do our paperwork and our visa forms and stuff. And he pulled me aside. He said, hey, where are you guys headed? I said, we're going down to Ocampo, and he was familiar with that. He'd been to Ocampo and worked down there. <clears throat> and he said, well, let me tell you about something that happened the other night. And I've told this story before. Some of you may have heard this story, but it's a true story. He said, we were going down there through the desert, and he said, we had a couple of vehicles full of people. And he said, out of nowhere, these, these three vehicles come up, and one gets in front of us, and one comes behind us, and one gets on the side of us, and they basically just pull us off the road on the shoulder. And um, these guys hop out of their vehicles, and they've got automatic weapons, and they've got you know, face things over their faces and they're just, and they get their guns up and they're pointing their guns at us and they're screaming and hollering in Spanish. And, and Browning speaks great Spanish, so he knew what they were saying. And so um, Browning gets out of his car and he's looking around and this guy's screaming at him to get on the ground, get on the ground, and he's ignoring him. And he's looking around, he's trying to find somebody. He goes, hey, and he's speaking to him in Spanish. He says, who's your leader? Which one of you guys is in charge here? And this guy at the front comes walking up and he's got his gun in Browning's face. And he goes, I'm in charge. What do you want? Get on the ground. He goes, he goes, I'm telling you right now, if you're smart, you will get in your cars and you will leave here because you are messing with God. And God is who we work for and we are messengers of God. And I'm telling you, you don't want to mess with us. You do not want to mess with us. So if you're smart, 
you take your guns and you get back in your car and you'll leave here right now. And you know what they did? They left. <laughs> and so Brownie looks at me and goes, so just be ready. Cause you know, you guys are heading down there. <laughs> and I said, you want to go with us? You got time just to come back and go with us? I mean, really, I'd love that. <laughs> But that's exactly the idea, y'all. It's the idea that when you understand who God is, you have a certain level of confidence in you, not in you, but in him. If you could see the countless number of angel soldiers that are at his beck and call right now, would it not change your confidence, your courage in your own life? Maybe it would change like Isaiah, your submission to him to go, wow, I've been following the wrong guy. Here's what Jesus said. Jesus said an amazing thing. The last thing he said to his followers before he went into heaven, he said this, Jesus came near and said to them, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you, and I am with you always, even to the end. Now, the most important part of that, I think, well, you could argue about this, but one of the most important parts of that is verse 18 where Jesus says to his disciples, the last thing he says to them before he leaves them, all authority is mine. There's nobody above me. There's nobody who tells me what to do. All authority has been given to me, not just on earth, but in heaven. Yahweh Sabaoth, I command countless number of hosts. Remember the hosts when they came and announced to the shepherds that Jesus was gonna be born and had been born in Bethlehem, a heavenly host? It's that idea of just a myriad, a countless number of angels that he says, I've been given all authority, so go. Don't go timid. Don't go shy. Don't go weak. Don't go like you're just, you're, you're, your belief system is equal to every other religion. No, no, no. You go in my authority, in my name, with my confidence, because you represent me. And we got a problem, church, because we don't live like that. We live like we're scared. Well, I don't want to tell them about Jesus because they might get mad at me or they might disagree with me or they might ask me a question. It's not an option. <laughs> He's the God of gods. He's the most high. He's El Elyon. He is Yahweh Sabaoth. He is the God who knows. And so when he says go, we go because he has all the authority. So we need to carry ourselves not with, not with pride, but with the confidence that we represent him to everyone that's in our life. Just like my friend Browning, he wasn't afraid of those bad guys. And those bad guys have probably done a lot of stuff to a lot of people. But he said, I don't stand there in my strength, I stand there in the strength of my God. And so this morning, that's a challenge for us to say, is that the way we're gonna live our lives? Are we gonna carry ourselves like that with the knowledge that we serve that God? If, if God could just peel back the heavens and you could see with your eyes, it would be transformational, wouldn't it? Change everything about the way you carry yourself. So go ahead and carry yourself like that now because it's true. It's true. I said a minute ago that God wants to have a relationship with you and that I was going to tell you how that can happen. And I'm going to do that right now. If you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible says you don't have a relationship with God. You're not his child. You're actually his enemy. Now, the good news is you don't have to stay in that, that situation or condition because when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, he moves you from being enemy to friend. He adopts you as his child and brings you into his family. He becomes your father. He forgives all your sin and you're not under condemnation ever again. You're forgiven and put into a right relationship with him. And that's the gospel. And you can't do anything about that except 
put your trust in Jesus Christ. You can't earn that. You could never be good enough, me either. Great thing is you don't have to be. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, he does everything for you. He saves you completely. And so this morning, if that's you, whether you're watching online or you're in the room here and you want to ask Christ to come into your life, I'm going to ask everybody just to bow your head and close your eyes this morning. And if you're already a believer, I'm going to ask you to pray for people who are in this room right now and people that are watching online. If you've never asked Christ to come into your life, I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to ask you just to raise your hand this morning. If that you want Christ to come into your life. If that's where you are this morning, just raise your hand. Be bold about it because it's the best thing you'll ever do is give your life to Jesus Christ. If you got your hand raised, whether you're here in the room or watching online, I want to lead you in doing what the Bible says. The Bible says, call whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So I want to lead you in a time of actually calling on his name. So right where you are, you could just say this to him with your head bowed, your eyes closed, because he knows your thoughts. As we talked about, El Dayan knows your motives. He knows if you're sincere right now. So he hears you when you pray to him. So you could just say, dear God in heaven, I know you're real. I know Jesus is your son. I know he's the savior of the world. And I want him to be my savior. I am sorry for my sin. I don't want any of it. I want you. I want to be saved. I want to be your child. I want to be forgiven. Would you come into my life now and save me and do what only you can do for me? Give me a relationship with God. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for loving me. Help me now to live like a confident follower of yours. I pray in Christ's name.